Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy Magazine's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. Around the world, countries are looking inward. Some call it deglobalization. I guess it's also connected to nationalism. But whatever the exact term, what's clear is that trade flows are being deprioritized in favor of domestic manufacturing. Big countries are plowing large sums of money into infrastructure projects. Now, to be clear, this is fine on its own. It is good to invest. But what if it turns out to be counterproductive? That is what FP's spring print cover sets out to explore. The cover says, what made in America means for the world. We have three pieces in there featuring three important voices. There's Adam Posen, who argues that while the Biden administration's massive investments in decarbonization and semiconductors are well-meaning, they represent zero-sum economics, which will backfire. Two centuries of economic history suggest initiatives such as the Chips and Science Act and the Inflation Reduction Act won't work as designed, he says. Meanwhile, the economist Iswar Prasad makes a broader point about how all of this hurts small countries in particular, because they just cannot keep up in a world in which the big economies only look within. And then finally, U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai, a former FP Live guest, refutes that argument, saying that U.S. policy is designed to lift Americans, not leave them behind. Which of them is right? Well, you should read all their takes in our print issue, which you can find on foreignpolicy.com. And to be clear, this isn't just about the Biden administration. The U.S. trends described in our issue began under the Trump administration and during the pandemic. So this is less of a partisan issue than one in which there's a divide among the community of economists and politicians. The question is, what's the right balance between the two? And that's why this week I want to discuss and also debate the cover essay. That's the one by Adam Posen. Adam's the president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He's also the author or editor of seven books and numerous widely cited articles. As always, FP subscribers get to send in their questions, which I sometimes ask on their behalf. If you'd like to do that too, subscribe now. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. You can also watch these interviews live in video if you go to foreignpolicy.com slash live. For now, here is Adam Posner. Now, Adam, you've gotten some terrific coverage in the press and Bloomberg in Axios, Neil Irwin says it's being much discussed among policymakers right now. So let's just lay this out a little bit and partly for the people who take things in better on TV or audio than than in print. Just lay out the argument. What is the crux of what you're trying to argue? Ravi, what I'm trying to argue is that the Biden administration and the Trump administration share some common fallacies about how they view the world and how the economy works. And these aren't just fallacies about what's an important economic matter or wasting money. These are more fundamental than that. The key ones are that both the Biden and Trump administrations, it put excessive belief 
that there's safety benefits and social benefits and economic benefits of producing stuff at home. This is actually not correct. What's important is to use the right stuff and make sure it's widely available. That is how we get technological progress. That's how we're going to deal with decarbonization. That's how our military will be able to stand up if necessary to China. And emphasizing this massive made in America physically of manufacturing and excluding even allies from producing where they are is going to backfire by making us less resilient. And it's going to lead to corruption, frankly, which we're already seeing in these protected industries. It's also not gonna create jobs on net. The final point is, and this chimes nicely with Eshmar Prasad's article in your issue as well, is that the Biden administration, like the Trump administration, assumes other countries have no agency, that if the US bullies, they have to fall in line. Yeah, I thought you put it very well in the essay as well, where you said the fallacies are self-dealing is smart, that self-sufficiency is attainable, that more subsidies are better, and that local production is what matters. And then you go on to expand on each of those points. Um, I want to get into some of those a little bit more. But, you know, with the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act in particular, which, as you, I think, rightly pointed out, is well-meaning. It provides an immense amount of funding and subsidies, mostly for green technologies, for green hydrogen, for decarbonization. And one of the arguments that people in that space are trying to put forward is that without this kind of big jumpstart, this big injection of cash, essentially, um, even if it's by, by way of a subsidy, we would not have the big global advance that we need to begin to tackle climate change. I think this is an expression of defeat that's not necessarily true. There is no disagreement that the Biden administration is right to say the US is not doing enough to decarbonize, not doing enough to address climate change. There's no question that is a fundamental difference with the Trump administration. And there's no question that some amount of increased public investment is required to help us get there. What's different is, and I think mistaken, is that they are not taking into account three things. First, that once you start down this road of saying, I'm gonna subsidize my industry and produce here, then others will do the same. So we saw the UK announced, or rather the, one of the major opposition figures at Miliband announced today in the UK, we're gonna subsidize here. If I get into office, we're gonna make it so that we can have our own industry, just like Europe. I met with several European policymakers in recent weeks who say, well, IRA is shutting us out, so we have to subsidize to match them. This is a mistaken subsidies race. More subsidies are not better. In addition to it being wasteful, it means we're not going to get economies of scale and we're not going to get competition. Secondly, that's going to interfere with innovation in this space. If we think about what happened with vaccines, if China and Russia both decided, not if, when China and Russia both decided they would self-produce vaccines and not buy from others, they ended up with deficient vaccines. In environmental energy, it may be the US producers who are not as clever or innovative or lucky as the European or the British or the Japanese producers. So we may not get the technology we need. 
The third point is that the rest of the world, we need to decarbonize as well. We need India, Brazil, Mexico, Indonesia, the developing world, as well as China. We need some sort of deal. And if all the rich countries are together trying to promote their own industry and then trying to sell their own industry's products down the throats of these developing countries, we're saying to them, you can never get independent. You can never have the money to produce your own technology. And you're going to want to politicize your own climate policy to getting good with us. That's the dynamic we saw with airplanes, with military, and eventually with vaccines. This is going to set back decarbonization. You know, you have this analogy um, high up in your essay about why it is desirable to be, um, well, it was a baseball analogy, and I think it's uh, today's opening day. I know nothing about baseball, so so I'm, I'm sure I'm going to mess this up. But you were pointing out that the commissioner of a sports league, so the, a, a person who does not care which teams win or lose, but aims to have fair, reliably enforced rules and shape how the game is played, that's the place that the U.S. should be. It should be the commissioner um, rather than, you know, one particular actor or the owner of a team. Just expand on that a little bit. W what does that mean in terms of the global economy? Yeah, and... Thanks for that, Ravi. And so just to say, if you feel like it today is opening day, but think in terms of NFL commissioner, NBA commissioner, or God forbid, the International Olympic Committee. If you're invested in the league or the game itself, you have an upside and you have a downside. The upside, or rather you avoid a downside. The upside is, as you said, you make money either way, putting it crudely. You get a cut of what's going on, the revenues, the prestige, the activity that goes with the sport. And so in trade, the US, by virtue of being the creator and enforcer of a lot of trade rules, actually got some benefits. So it's not that there was no self-dealing. It's not that the US was selflessly giving this up. Being commissioner means you're welcome everywhere and people want to deal with you and people want to do favors for you within limits. And then the US had within limits an ability to say, hey, we think Russia or China or whoever's cheating, the rest of you help me punish this. The downside you avoid by being the rules maker take, rather than just another player is once you become just another player, then everyone's interest is that you lose. You've shifted from a positive sum game to a zero sum game that you want to be on top which means you are trying to take out others and the others no longer have an interest in your being on top. And so this isn't like the U.S. would suddenly have a losing record, so to speak, mm. but it is a change fundamentally in the system from positive sum to zero sum as the article's titled in your, on your website. And so therefore others want the U.S. to lose. And that puts us in a very different game and it puts our ability to say China is cheating much more in question. I have to ask, how did we get here? Because, you know, part of what we are describing in this issue is that this is, you know, not a left or right or a democratic or Republican thing. It seems to be a Washington orthodoxy right now, that this is the way in which the, the direction in which the country should head. Not only that, I think, as you acknowledged, these policies of being more protectionist, of focusing on domestic manufacturing, uh, focusing on made in America, these are incredibly popular things. How did we get here? 
I don't like to try to read into other people's heads. That would be presumptuous of me. But what I think are some forces at work, Ravi, are first that there is an understandable great frustration on the part of a lot of working people and a part of a lot of politicians trying to take advantage of them that the economy has not been growing very strongly and the distribution of income has not been very favorable to working people for a while now. And so this became a scapegoating myth that if we, if we say it was foreigners, whether it's immigrants or foreign trade or Chinese cheating or neoliberal economists selling us out to multinational companies, there's a whole list of possible blame, but it's all about it's on the outside. And that suits a lot of people's purposes for straight up political gain in the populist manipulation sense, but also because it means you don't need to do hard work at home. It's all about, you can lash out at others and you don't need to displace or harm people. You harm people, but not in this visible way when you say, okay, you can't get access to this, this good, or you are gonna pay 13% more for everything, or you're going to lose these opportunities. That's less visible than saying, ha ha, we're getting them back. I think a second point is that the Biden administration and people associated with it and the Trump administration before that have become convinced that the 2016 election and the 2020 election turn critically on these few congressional districts in Wisconsin, West Virginia, Western Pennsylvania, a couple other places. That probably is right, although even that's not clear because always it's a question of if you had bigger turnout in other places or even in those districts, you might've changed the election. But additionally, they make the assumption that basically angry white males are swing voters. Angry white males who used to have jobs or used to live in non-smaller cities and rural areas who used to have jobs and people around them are mad and if by playing to them, you can swing the election. This is actually completely unfounded. The swing voters really are white suburban women. And they, these people, the other people are not motivated particularly by economic matters. They're motivated by other issues as far as we can tell from the polling data and social science research. And so it's a political mistake, but it's one believed with great fervor by a lot of people in both political parties. And so we get this disproportionate amount of attention on these particular districts and this notion that manufacturing jobs are the most important thing for swinging mm. those districts. The final thing is, and you, you have published things in foreign policy about this previously, the, the US has a long history of going back and forth on how open it is how isolationist is the term people used to use or how outward looking it is in its foreign policy. And for a variety of reasons, including the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and fear of China, there is a consensus in Washington, as you rightly point out, in both parties that we have to be more aggressive and more closed. Sometimes Congress gets it wrong and particularly on these swings to isolationism. Congress was wrong about the League of Nations and standing up to fascism in the 20s and 30s. Congress was wrong about the fears of communism excessively with the House on American Activities Committee in the 50s and into the 60s. And Congress is frankly wrong now. You are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations on video live on our website, foreignpolicy.com. 
Subscribers get to send us questions in advance. I often take them. So sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Let me bring up some of the points that U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai brought up on this very program. And I do this mostly to sort of polish some of the points in your essay and some of the comeback that I've seen online in commentary after this issue dropped. One of the things she alluded to in her interview with me is that welcome to democracy. So her point was that this, the IRA, for example, was the best that the Democrats could manage. You try winning over Joe Manchin. You try dealing with a polarized Congress. She didn't say that in as many words, but my sense was that was the import of what she was trying to get to me, that this is what we could come up with and we have to live with in a democratic system. What do you say to that? First off, I want to say that everyone should read Ambassador Tai's essay as well as mine. Of course, read mine first and after, but everyone should read <laughs> your interview rather than essay with Ambassador Tai. I think it's important. Um, second, on this statement that, as you say, she doesn't say explicitly, but she pretty clearly pushes this idea, and many of other people from the administration push, this is the best we can do. Um, it's very ironic because during the first term of Obama and subsequently, there was a lot of pushback from the left of the Democratic Party that the neoliberal economists had gone too small with stimulus in the early response to the financial crisis, had not done enough on bank regulation, both of which I happen to agree with on substance. But when Tim Geithner or Larry Summers or other neoliberal people like that would say, well, it was the best we could do with Congress, they were savagely attacked by the left. And so there is some irony in Ambassador Tai suddenly now saying, well, this is the best we can do. But even leaving aside the irony, if it was just, if it is just the reality that you can't move Congress, then we have a different problem. At some point, Congress has to be held accountable for its mistakes. At some point, we have to not just pander to Congress, but say to them, you have this wrong. And that is something that both parties have been unwilling to do very much of. And if the assumption is, and it seems to be the working assumption of the last few administrations, particularly in foreign policy and economic policy, that Congress has fixed ideas and you can't change them, then we have a very deep problem in this society because the point of a legislature is to take evidence, hold hearings, debate, reconsider. Um, so I view it as incredible defeatism to take this attitude. Now, linked to this, Adam, um, other than the economic orthodoxy in, in Congress is the prevailing viewpoint about China, which, you know, uh, Ambassador Tai and many others will say has long broken rules on trade, on internet, intellectual property, currency rules. And there's a big debate that we often have here at this magazine about America's perception of China. Yeah. Um, you, however, point out in the essay that China's role is overblown. Can you explain that a little bit? Because that's a big part of this debate as well. Absolutely. And I, I one thing which I tried to say in the essay, including learning from things you've published previously, is I certainly am not denying 
the aggressiveness of many Chinese foreign policies, the horrible behaviors on human rights towards the Uyghurs and most China towards democracy in Hong Kong, the various abuses of third world developing economies who borrowed from China. So that's not in, in dispute, or at least I would hope would not be in dispute. The question is, A, how much is the U.S. economic situation due to China? B, how much would pushing back by economic means actually affect this? And then C, how does that translate to national security? So on the first point, this is a very long debate, but just to say, Every other advanced economy has not had the problems suffering from China's entry into the world economy that the U.S. did. So it's something we did. We didn't respond correctly. Not inherent in China making a living. Second, are the economic tools going to work? And this is a lot of what my essay is about. And this is where you refer to not 200 years of economic theory, but 200 years of economic history shows us that these kinds of sanctions policies and export exclusion policies, if they're at all broader than just like literally semiconductors for the military tend to fail quite spectacularly. So it's not gonna work. And then third, the national security aspect. As we're seeing right now with Russia and Ukraine, you know, war is more about issues of systemic resilience, uh, faith of your people, ability to mobilize society, a lot of things that are not about who's got the most advanced AI. And so it is reasonable to say, yes, we need to stand up to China, but worrying about it as the major economic driver or using economic tools to stand up to China is probably not the right way to do it. I want to come back to national security, because I think that's a big part of this debate as well. But just one more beat on something that Ambassador Tai said that stayed with me. She pointed out that this isn't about deglobalization; It's about de-risking. In other words, the pandemic changed things. COVID-19 wasn't in anyone's playbook. None of us predicted that supply chains would shut down the way they did. And it's made countries around the world, not just America, focus much more on safeguarding their own supply chains and on de-risking. How do you push back against that sort of worry that policymakers around the world seem to have right now? I'm not saying it's right, but it um, is a worry that they have. It, it is a worry. It is even, I would say, a valid concern. Um, but it, the analysis behind what Ambassador Tai is saying is to me fundamentally flawed. So there is inherently going to be risk in this world. There are bad actors like Russia and North Korea. There are pandemics, God forbid. There is severe weather growth at increasing frequency due to decarbonization. All of these in a physical world will interrupt economic activity, cause damage, disruption. That risk doesn't go to zero, no matter what you do. And I know Ambassador Tai's not suggesting that. So the question is, given that risk, what's the best way to deal with it? And this focus on doing things at home and what I call the fallacy of self-sufficiency has been repeatedly disproven that actually having a diversified set of suppliers, diversified geographically, diversified in type, diversified in location is the best way to build resilience, including at home. This doesn't mean you should have no production at home. 
And then there are certain things like vaccines, like munitions that you can stockpile. There are certain heavy equipment things that part of the way you build resilience is you have more inventories, whether they're public inventories like Joseph in the book of Genesis uh, with, with Egypt's grain, or whether it's literally stockpiles of bird flu, avian flu vaccines, you build those up. There are things to be done, but the removal from the world, the deglobalization aspect or the economic nationalist aspect is gonna make resilience worse, not better, because you're gonna end up with inferior supply chains driven by politics, less dependable, less diversification, more corrupt. Look at Russia. Russia has worked very hard to be self-sufficient over the last 20 years, and they are finding themselves in deep trouble economically and in military forms because they tried so hard to be self-sufficient and because that led to corruption of their military production and their military. So yes, the analysis we need to be more resilient is right. No, the idea that this path is going to make you more resilient, that is wrong. So the the national security argument here is one which I think is interesting because the critique that economic and trade policy right now is zero sum, and then you have war, which is pretty much meant to be zero sum. It is by design zero sum, and the world is at war right now. So countries necessarily are looking to play this zero-sum game to manufacture semiconductors and keep them away from, from other countries, to manufacture shipping or other arms uh, that will give them a leg up. And they, they don't want any of the things that you're describing for it to be a, a level playing field. How do you come back on that? Again, I think the history shows a different picture than that knee-jerk response. I don't mean to be dismissive, but I think that is one of these things where that's sort of understandably, that was people's panic reaction in the US and Europe in the early days of the COVID pandemic was, oh, we gotta, we gotta not export any of our masks. We gotta not export any of our vaccines. We gotta make sure it's not for us. This is a natural human reaction, but neither China nor the US are going anywhere. They're separated by Pacific, by the Pacific. They both have strategic nuclear deterrence. They're both very large economies and very large populations. So this is about not just, can we cut them off in the next 30 days so they don't have enough to do X, whether X is invade Taiwan or threaten Alaska or whatever it is people think it's happening. It's more about if we're going to have a long-term strategic competition with ongoing threats, how do we manage that? And my view is that more direct confrontation in security areas, including cyber, including naval measures in the South China Seas and around Taiwan, including confronting them on what used to be currency manipulation now is some debt issues. These can help. But for the idea in terms of making us zero sum on an ongoing basis, that's self-defeating. It increases the chance that we will go to war. It increases the chance that we will be short of something. It increases the chance that we will corrode our own readiness because we will let companies get fat and corrupt behind claiming themselves as national security needs. And frankly, it reduces the chance of there ever being any movement 
in Chinese attitudes, Chinese party attitudes, obviously, Chinese mm -hmm. Communist Party attitudes towards the threat from the West. I'm not saying we should appease them. I, as I just said, I'm happy as necessary for the US government to confront China, but going zero sum in economics for a long scale ongoing conflict makes no sense. Okay, I want to start taking some subscriber questions because uh, we have many readers who've engaged with your essay and they're excited to delve a little bit deeper. I've channeled many of them, but I'm going to name check a few. Um, Tom Gronfeld asks, um, is the U.S. too corrupt, politics dominated by narrow special interests, to run an industrial policy that serves the needs of the nation rather than the businesses with the strongest lobbyists? Quite a few people have asked this question because it popped up in your essay about how a race towards subsidies can lead to corruption, so? I think all of us, leave aside even my essay, obviously, uh, I think all of us have to be shocked and disappointed at how much corruption has been unveiled in the US over the last, say, 20 years. Uh, obviously, there was the overt corruption of officials in the Trump administration, starting with President Trump. That was egregious and should be prosecuted. But there is more fundamental corruption. It's building planes and not being willing to update the try and do a software fix because you don't want to spend the money and the regulators saying, okay, try that. Oops, a few hundred people died. We guess we can't allow that. There's corruption, obviously, rampant in our financial system in what we've seen with the cryptocurrencies and then SVB Bank. Um, there is corruption in this fundamental sense that if we put up barriers to competition from abroad, we basically encourage very cozy government business relations with insufficient competition. And that leads to members of Congress and senators saying, hey, they're in my district, they're my favorite company, give them the contract. Oh, by the way, thank you very much for the, for the collection of PAC donations you got. I mean, again, we know all this. There are two ways to fight it. The first is what used to make the US less corrupt and what still makes the US much less corrupt than most of the world is rule of law, that you actually have prosecutors who, and, and a free press and people actually pursue this. The second is you try to design policies that are not corruption proof, but that are less prone to corruption. And I think that part of the message of my essay and what I'm sad but glad many readers are, are, are responding to is part of the reason you don't do these isolationist protectionist policies is because they're policies that are prone to corruption. I think that's one of the big differences between my view and the view of Ambassador Tai and others advancing these policies is they believe they can say, oh, we're going to do, we're going to create a new company here, or we're going to take on a currently existing American company. Company, and the government can manage it. You know, I'm the child of two federal civil servants. I'm, I'm totally in favor of government management. I'm actually in favor of government investment. I'm not optimistic that long-term companies that are favored by the government don't exploit it. I want to bring up some other questions slash comments. John Mallory says, if the Chinese state capitalist model inherently involves unfair trade practices, how would you address this violation of WTO norms, which predictably has undermined international trade as victims adopt defensive strategy, 
Steve Lorenzen says, a good deal of evidence supports the notion that some degree of manufacturing is a necessary complement to technological R&D. How do you promote some level of domestic manufacturing while balancing the concerns uh, that you rightly raise? Okay, so on the first point um, about uh, unfair competition, let me go back to baseball or football or some sports analogy. I'm only marginally more informed about that than you are, Rafi. But um, essentially, there's every time there's, there's always cheating, which is oftentimes called gamesmanship. And then there's cheating that matters. So like in baseball, there's a tradition of trying to steal signs of what the pitcher is saying to the catcher and so on and trying to hit its result or um, trying to, when you're running the base pass, disrupt the fielders. A certain amount of that, you know, if you're the Yankees or if you're the Los Angeles Dodgers, you know, one of the teams that's currently at the top, you, you, you just sort of go with it, right? I mean, in the end, it's not gonna swing the game. If it gets egregious, you call them on it, but it's just sort of part of the nasty game. Then there's stuff like the Houston Astros did several years ago, which was have a video camera set up to absolutely capture the signs and then a signaling regime from the camera to the batter that just basically subverted the whole thing. And that's why their World Series victory was seen as tainted. So to take the analogy, there's a lot of stuff China does that is annoying, unethical. And when I say China, I mean, again, businesses in the in, and government officials working for the Chinese Communist Party, mm-hmm. not Chinese people. Mm-hmm. There's tech, there's huge amounts of intellectual property theft, as I discussed in the essay. But part of that's just part of the game. It's when they do things that are particularly egregious. So like when they were manipulating their currency to weaken it against the dollar on an enormous scale from 2003 to 2008. That that's when you want to confront them. So it's the Astros making a system of subverting the whole game versus a little bit of hard elbow play. And that's why the U.S.'s commissioner is better off. Because if we sit there and we, we're the biggest player, we're the winning team, and we whine all the time about you know intellectual property theft, well, there's always intellectual property theft. The U.S. did intellectual property theft by government and by private sector throughout the 19th century. The US is in a sense doing it now by telling various foreign companies and semiconductors and batteries, you have to produce here and you have to transfer some of the technology to our local production, which is precisely what we complained the Chinese were doing to to our companies. Now you can say, well, that's fine. So now we're being realistic. Now it's tit for tat. Or you can say better we run the system and can enforce the rules And so when it gets bad, we do. And that's what happened with currencies. When the U.S. finally stood up in the G20, G7, excuse me, and China, they stopped manipulating the currency. I'm sorry, the second question, just could you just repeat? Sure. That was really just about how do you promote some level of domestic manufacturing. And Adam, I'm just going to add to that because I, I know we're almost out of time. But as you think about that domestic manufacturing question, I think what I'd like you to leave our viewers with is a sense of what can Congress do given some of the restraints and constraints that they have, given how popular and populist it is to promote Buy American, Made in America policies. Um, If you had to leave them with a thought or a political strategy uh, to go the route you're suggesting, um, which is to avoid protectionism, what would you tell them? 
Okay, on manufacturing, I think it's important to distinguish between manufacturing capacity, which economists can measure in a sense by value added, and manufacturing employment or factories. So the US manufacturing has been going up in value added year after year for decades. In fact, part of the reason there's less employment in manufacturing in the US right now than there once was is not because of China, it's because US manufacturers have used technology and become much more productive. So we're producing more manufacturers with fewer workers. Now you can say that's not fair to the workers, but that's what a capitalist system does. And there's some reason for that. So maintaining some manufacturing capacity is less difficult than, and is not well served than the by the aspirations of the Biden-Trump policies to create specific manufacturing jobs in specific congressional districts. More broadly, as you rightly put it, Robbie, um, you know, what could Congress do? I think there are a couple things, but the broad principle is don't be discriminatory on a broad-based basis to make it made in America. Either make it, there are two dimensions when you can do things better. Make it so, okay, you're gonna exclude China and Russia and Iran, fine. We can argue about whether it's good to exclude China or not. I think in the end it's not, but anyway, Draw a line that if it's an ally, if it's a democracy, if it's a market economy, if it's someone who's no threat to the US, you're open. The, the default is it doesn't matter where they make it. Forced labor in, in Xinjiang, you exclude, but you have very specific exclusions. And Congress is now complaining in the press we've seen today, Senator Manchin, for example, Senator Wyden, that the Biden administration is going against the will of Congress by putting in these backdoor exceptions to the IRA policies about how so the Europeans and Japanese and Koreans can sell cars here and get the same subsidies. And this is where what I mean about Congress being wrong. We have to stand up to Senator Manchin and Senator Wyden, many much less enlightened, uh, engaged senators than them, and say, no, reconsider. There's a reason the Biden administration is doing, even though they're very much on your side, is doing this because it's crazy to say that allies should not be treated this way. It's crazy to shut out the whole world, even if you want to shut out China, Russia, or Iran. The second thing that the Congress should be considering is much more public investment than private investment. But what I mean by that is every, obviously everything Congress funds is public investment in some sense. But right now, what they're doing is they're funding things tied to specific production in specific places by specific companies. And there should be much more open contracting and much more investment in public goods like R&D, in training of engineers, in facilities and infrastructure, rather than funneling the money very directly to particular companies in production. Adam Posen, thank you so much for your time. And not only, um in terms of writing the essay, but taking the time today to answer reader questions, subscriber questions, and some of the, the counters to the points you've made. Thank you so much, Robbie. It's a pleasure to have had your editing and to get to work with foreign policy and reach your readers. I really appreciate it. And that was Adam Posen. Make sure you read his essay up on foreignpolicy.com, as well as the other perspective from Ambassador Catherine Tai, who has also appeared on FP Live. Next week, 
Admiral James Stavridis, the former NATO Supreme Allied Commander. We are going to discuss a forthcoming offensive by Ukraine and really get into what to expect this spring and summer in the war there. Remember, if you want to watch these in video live, you can do that on our website. That's foreignpolicy.com slash live. Subscribers can submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. Sign up, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. I'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, Professor of Law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are.
Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.